Kuer Mora. Kasienda Sabbat. For those who don't speak Afrikaans. That's good morning and blessed Sabbath. And as you know, we just got back from two weeks in South Africa and had a fantastic reception. Flew into uh, Johannesburg and Samuel Jacobs uh, met us there and drove us uh, another about four hours to, after a 15 hour, half hour flight to uh, Drakensburg Mountains and Drakensville is the town where we were able to do a camp meeting there and had a really wonderful reception. And then as the camp meeting ended, uh, we uh, went over um, for a couple days to a game reserve and has spent a couple of days seeing uh, uh, the the big animals in South Africa. Fantastic. We'll talk about that after class. And then I want to thank Heino and Morena Torledge, who drove us all over and translated and so forth and had a great time with them. And then we went to Ladysmith uh, with an I, because there's also a Ladysmith with a Y in South Africa. So we went to Ladysmith with an I. And uh, I want to thank uh, Gwyneth uh, Roberts-Baxter and her parents, Robert and Lillian, and also Dr. Lindy Bozeman, who were all very integral in setting up an uh, opportunity to speak to the local community leadership, including the magistrate and teachers and, and town leaders, and uh, did two programs there that were very well received. And then we went on down to Somerset West, which is a suburb of Cape Town, and did an all-day seminar down there. I want to thank Jacques and Carol Vandeheven and Nella DeWall, who also were integral, and they worked so hard, they had 450 pre-registers for that seminar, and it was very, again, well-received, and we were just so thankful for the entire team in South Africa. We had a great time, great food, great animals, great people, and let me tell you, this message is spreading in South Africa very, very strongly, so thank you guys. Miss you already, already, so. All right, so we're going to go into the lesson, and let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you're a God of love. Pray that your spirit will be with us. Give us insight and wisdom, hearts of compassion. May we discern the truth today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And the lesson title, it's in uh, lesson seven in the book of Job, and the title is called Retributive Punishment. Normally, I don't do a preamble before I actually get into the lesson. However, this lesson, I think, is going to be very difficult for some people to hear. So I felt it necessary to do this preamble. If you had a child who was suffering with severe illness, feverish, festering lesions, and real misery, you would not hate your child. You would have great compassion for your child, and you would also feel sadness seeing them suffer. But you would want to accurately diagnose the source of the illness so a remedy could be provided. This is how I felt this week as I read the lesson. This lesson is filled with evidence, symptoms of a deep infection within the church that causes the church to be sick, to suffer that keeps many Christians trapped in fear and in a false system of beliefs that obstructs their access to God and his true remedy to heal and restore them to his original ideal. Further, it is this very infection of thought that has obstructed the church from doing its last day mission to lighten the world for Christ's return. And by identifying this infection that is ravaging the child, if your child was sick, you're not not seeking to attack the child, you're seeking to heal because you care. So by exposing this affection of thought, I'm not attacking the church. I'm actually seeking to bring healing so the church can fulfill its mission. So with that in mind, what do you think of the title? Retributive punishment. What does retributive mean? It's involving retribution. Okay, so what does retribution mean? If you look at the dictionary, it means requital or to return or reward according to the merits or deserts, especially for evil. Something given or inflicted 
in such requital or repayment or returning in kind. When you think of retribution, what comes to mind? How do you understand retribution? Through which law lens are you looking? Are you looking through imposed law, the type of laws that human beings and sinners make up? Or are you looking through design law, the creator of the universe? When you think of these words, human law works by the infliction of punishment. You break the rule, you get a ticket. You commit a crime, you go to jail. Some authority inflicts a punishment and a consequence upon you. That's how human law works. It's also known as coercion or compelling power. We're going to compel you with threats and we're going to punish you if you don't do what we say. That's human governments. Is this how God's government works? No. God creates, think about it, he created space, time, energy, matter, life, relation. He constructed reality. His laws are the protocols upon which it all is designed to function. We can't do that. Satan attacks God and his law by proclaiming that God functions. Get your mind around this. His allegation is that God functions no different than sinful beings. That's how he functions. He makes up rules, and he threatens to kill you if you don't keep his rules. That's Satan's allegation. It's a lie, and it's an infection of thought that's infected all of Christianity, including the SDA church. And it cites fear and rebellion rather than love and trust. And this lesson is chock full of it. I'm going to pull it out for you and show it to you. And to be truthful about this is not an attack against a denomination or a church group, but to recognize that while God has his institutions, his church, Satan works to corrupt God's institutions by getting those institutions to accept and practice Satan's ideas and methods. Satan succeeded 2,000 years ago in getting God's institution on earth to accept his distorted view of law such that when Jesus came, they accused him of being a lawbreaker and they executed him. The same problem is happening today. And remember God's law of love, the principle of giving, how life is designed. We've gone through many examples in nature. Every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide and the plants get back oxygen to you. If you transgress the law and selfishly hoard your carbon dioxide to yourself, you die. Transgression of the law results in death. The law of liberty. In fact, on Yahoo News today, I saw an article this morning where a man in Indiana was arrested yesterday. Why? He proposed to his girlfriend. She said, no, I'm not going to marry you. He reached over and pulled out a gun and shot her in the head, killed her. He admitted to it. So do you understand that as we unpack what's in the lesson, the lesson is saying Christ is the groom, the church is the bride. He's proposed for an eternal marriage with the groom. But if you don't say yes, he'll kill you. It's a lie. That's Satan's view. So before we even get into the lesson, I think it's important to lay a foundation of the historic perspective that the Adventist church was supposed to bring to the world. And this comes, all these quotes are from Ellen White from various sources. First one, Desire of Ages 759. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. Notice, this doesn't say compelling power is usually found under Satan's government, or that God's principles are not often of this order. These are absolutes. Only under Satan's government do you find compelling power, and the Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love, and the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. 
What is the prevailing power? Truth and love. Remember that. It's going to come back up later as we talk about how the final end of sin and sinners come. Truth and love is the power that brings about the end. This is uh, Review and Herald, September 7, 1897. God could have destroyed Satan and all his sympathizers as easily as one picks up a pebble and casts it to the earth. But by doing so, he would have given a precedent for the exercise of force. All the compelling power is found only under Satan's government. Does it say most compelling power or the majority of the compelling power? No, all compelling power is found only, not usually, but only under Satan's government. So what would it mean then if we present God as using such methods? It means his character. And it means that we are presenting God in the character of Satan. Yes. That's what it means. I don't want to say it very, very clearly. Notice the very next words in the quote. So the words, all compelling power is found only under Satan's government. Next words, the Lord's principles are not of this order. He would not work on this line. This principle is wholly of Satan's creation. How much wiggle room is in there? Okay, the lesson for today argues the same argument that Satan does, that God's principles are the principles of force, coercion, compelling power, the infliction of pain, suffering, and death. I will read these things out of the lesson as we go along, but I'm laying a foundation. This is not the message that we were supposed to take. This is the message from Ellen White that our church was supposed to take, but we've been infected with a distortion. Keep going with some quotes. This is Acts of the Apostles, page 12. Whereunto, asked Christ, shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with... What comparison shall we compare it? Mark 4.30. He could not employ the kingdoms of the world as a similitude. In society found nothing with which to compare it. Earthly kingdoms rule by the ascendancy of physical power. But from Christ's kingdom, every carnal weapon, every instrument of coercion is banished. Again, is there room for exceptions? Does it say, every carnal weapon of coercion is banished except for the final end when God in justice uses carnal weapons to punish and kill? That's what the lesson teaches. God is not the source of death. God is the source of life. Czar of Ages 761. In the opening of the Great Controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, And that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. This argument that justice requires that God punish sin started in heaven with Satan and his rebellion in heaven. And we are still perpetuating the lie. What do you think when you hear preachers say, evil must be punished, we must, God must be, uh, must punish sin. This is what a third of the angels thought sounded so right. It's all predicated on assuming that God's law functions like ours. See, if God's law is like ours, then it's true. God would need to be punished or there's no justice. Because if we have laws and and there's no enforcement, see, then it's not fair. Fairness requires enforcement. But the whole distortion is this, this belief that God's laws are no different than our own. And then, first elected message is 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for a sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. This is not an infliction. This is the natural consequence of separating yourself from the source of life. 
Does, does this mean there's no punishment for sin? Does this mean there's no retribution for sin? Of course not. The retribution, however, comes out from sin, not from God. What does the Bible actually say? Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. It's a stark contrast. The lesson is saying the punishment of God is eternal death. That's what it's saying. But it's not what the Bible says. Or James 1.15. Sin, when full grown, gives birth to death. Or Galatians 6.8. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. Ellen G. White never uses the term retributive punishment. Never. Can't find it, at least in the... uh, in the CD-ROM, type that in, you can't find it. Well, it's in the lesson in the Bible commentary where she says, we are not living in the time of retributive judgment. Uh, she never uses the phrase retributive punishment. Next phrase, she does use the term retributive judgment. Okay? Is there a difference? Is there a difference between retributive punishment and retributive judgment? How does love work? Does love seek to harm or to save? To punish or to deliver. How does love work? So God is love. How does God work? So what does love do when the one who is loved uses their freedom to insist on rebellion and rejection of all endeavors to save? What does love do? Does love make a judgment at some point that there is nothing more that can be done for that person? The person is beyond reach. Does love at some point let go its interventions to protect? And what happens when love stops interceding with sickness, with deviations from violations from the protocols that life is built upon? Is there terrible suffering and death that occurs? But why? Because of an infliction of the ruling authority? Or because the ruling authority is making a judgment, there's nothing more I can do. I'm setting you free to reap what you've chosen. Notice this description, again, from Ellen White. Councils to the Church, page 336. We are near to the close of time. I have been shown that the retributive judgments of God are already in the land. The Lord has given us warning of the events about to take place. Light is shining from his word, yet darkness covers the earth and grows darkness to people. So we got this description. Retributive judgment is... The question is, well, what... Action. What actual action does God take that makes this retributive judgment? Continue on the very next paragraph, not skipping anything. The Lord is removing his restrictions from the earth, and soon there will be death and destruction, increasing crime and cruel, evil working against the rich who have exalted themselves against the poor. Those who are without God's protection will find no safety in any place or position. Human agents are to be trained and are using their inventive power, their inventive powers to put in operation the most powerful machinery to wound and to kill. What is God's action? What is he actually doing? Letting Letting go. Withdrawing, removing restrictions, setting free those in rebellion. Who is training these human agents? From where is the destruction and death originating? Continue on the next paragraph. Again, not skipping anything. The judgments of God are in the land. 
The wars and rumors of wars, the destruction by fire and flood, say clearly that the time of trouble, which is to increase until the end, is very near at hand. What are God's judgments that are in the land? They are his accurate diagnoses of the hearts of the people, his judgments that there's nothing more that love and mercy can do, so he sets them free. And who is causing the trouble that's in the land? Is it God's angels? God's angels causing the trouble? Or is the righteous saints of God, the holy people who are to turn the other cheek and love your enemies, is that who's causing the trouble in the land? Or is it the ones who have rejected God who are doing the violence in the land? It's Satan and his followers. What is the retributive judgment in this passage? He started out, retributive judgment. His judgment is they're beyond his reach and he removes his restrictions and then they go into self-destruct mode. This is Great Controversy 541. God has given to men a declaration of his character and his methods of dealing with sin. The Lord is merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. All the wicked he will destroy. The transgressors shall be destroyed together. The end of the wicked shall be cut off. Psalms 145, 20 and 37, 38. Now get this. The power and authority of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion. Okay, what does it mean? Those who think through imposed law lenses hear that one sentence and immediately hear that God is going to use his power to inflict pain, suffering, and death. That God would act in a way a sinful human being would act. But we have to harmonize. Don't we have to harmonize this with all the other ones we just read? Compelling power is never to be used. It's only under Satan's government. How do we harmonize that? Very next sentence after this one, the power and authority of the divine government will be employed. In fact, it's not even next sentence. It's a semicolon. So it's the continuation in the same sentence. The power and authority of the divine government will be employed to put down rebellion, semicolon. Yet all the manifestations of retributive justice will be perfectly consistent with the character of God as merciful, long-suffering, and benevolent being. Think that through. How can that be? You can never get that to work in imposed law models. It will work beautifully in design law. We're going to unpack that. Next sentence. Again, not skipping anything. God does not force the will or judgment of any. Would that be true if, in fact, God was saying, love me, I just want you to love me. I've sent my son to die for you. I just love you that much. But if you don't love me, I will be forced by justice to use my power to torture and kill you. If that were true and you believed he was saying that, can this be true? God does not force the will or judgment of any. No, we're compelled. We're coerced at that point. He can't be saying that. God does not force the will or judgment of any. He takes no pleasure in a slavish obedience. He desires that the creatures of his hand, and remember, we're in the context of a statement where she uses retributive justice. But notice how she's saying, this is what's key. Many people who hold to what the lesson holds to think through declaratives. What's a declarative? The declaratives, yet manifestations of retributive justice. That's a declarative. Now what we're going to read is a description of how that functions. She describes how it works. Okay? He desires the creatures of his hand shall love him because he is worthy of love. He would have them obey him because they have an intelligent appreciation of his wisdom, justice, and benevolence. And all who have a just conception of these qualities will love him because they are drawn toward him in admiration of his attributes. Can this happen? Can you be drawn to their being in admiration of their love if they're threatening to kill you if you don't love them? 
No, it can't work. Those who teach this idea that we find in the lesson, and I'll read you the quotes, have been duped in believing Satan's view of God and God's government and how it works. And thus, they're obstructing the anti-mission of this church. The principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught and exemplified by our Savior are a transcript in the will of the will and character of God. Christ declared that he taught nothing except that which he received from the Father. The principles of divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's, Savior's precepts, love your enemies. God execute, executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those upon whom the judgments are visited. What does it mean? These are words. What does it mean? How do you put it together? You think through design law. Do we immediately, when we hear this judgment's visited, forget all the things we've read earlier about compelling power and coercive power? Do we forget all that and realize, okay, however that works, it can't be compelling and coercive. Are we so conditioned with the way human law works and these words of judgment and justice that we immediately fall back into, he's going to do it. What is justice? It's simply doing what is right. That's what it is, doing what's right. And what is the right thing to do to those who insist on separating themselves from God? What's the right thing to do? Let him go. Keeping on with the quote. Not skipping anything. He would make them happy if he could do so in accordance with the laws of his government and the justice of his character. He surrounds them with the tokens of his love. He grants them a knowledge of his law and follows them with the offerings of his mercy. But they despise his law, make void. They despite his love, make void his law and reject his mercy. While constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know that he abhors their sins. The Lord bears long with the perversity. But the decisive hour will come when at last their destiny is to be decided. Pause. By whom? Thank you. Do you know how many on this other view? God has a tribunal. He's going to look at evidence and he's going to decide their destiny. No. I'll keep reading. Will he then change these rebels, chain these rebels to a side? Will he force them to obey? Those are rhetorical questions, meaning he's not going to do it. Those who have chosen Satan as their leader have been controlled by his power and, and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. Pause. Why not? What has prevented them from being prepared? Who has prevented them? Hey, choice. Next, next sentence. Pride, de- deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. How did it become fixed in their characters? Did God fix it there? Did God determine this for them? Did God decide they would be this way? Get your mind around. This is design law. He has given us freedom. When we make choices to rebel, we transform and change ourselves. Neurobiology changes. Character changes. Can they enter heaven to dwell forever with those who, dis- who they despise and hate on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy self-esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to the corrupt. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could heaven offer those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interests? Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high, the holy state, the perfection that exists there? Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy and rapturing music and melodious strains rising in honor of God and the Lamb and cease the streams of light flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits on the throne? Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and join their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Why not? Because God is unwilling? 
Because God is using his power to cause some type of unpleasantness for them. Because God is taking some type of retribution against them. Listen to why. She gives why. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven, but they they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven. And now it is too late. A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. What has happened? Why has it happened? Why did it happen? Was it a, a, a judicial process? It's purity, holiness, and peace would be torture to them. Torture? Look, we got torture. Yeah, there's torture. Is God using his power to inflict torture? No. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. What kind of fire? Are the righteous in this fire? In the, are, they, are they hurt or damaged by this fire? They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. If their exclusion from heaven is voluntary, then is it an infliction upon them? If it's voluntary, then is it compelled upon them? Is it coerced? No. No compelling power is ever used in God's government. He doesn't coerce. Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict. What's another word for verdict? Judgment. Right? Judgment or diagnosis. Yeah. But here's here's the verdict. That the wicked are incurable. Incurable. This is design law. This is a state of being. This is not a legal condition. This is a characterological condition. So remember all these quotes as we go into the lesson for today. Sabbath uh, lesson. This is the memory text. Can you search the deep things of God? Job 11.7. Then the first paragraph states, the problem of human suffering continues to daunt humanity. We see good people suffer immense tragedy while evil ones go unpunished in this life. First, does your mind become suspicious when the lesson quotes Zophar, one of the friends of Job, who God later says was wrong as a source of wisdom? There's a flag going, wait a second. Can we search the deep things of God? The suggestion of Zophar and the lesson is that we cannot. But what does the Bible say? Deuteronomy 4.29. But if you, if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Or Jesus, Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And he who knocks, the door will be open. Can we find God by searching for him? In fact, It's a requirement that you have to exercise your will to choose, to choose God. You have to want to connect to him. Who would want you to think, who would want you to think that it's pointless to try and search to understand and know God? It's it's pointless. You're just saying you can't know. Why even try? And they're quoting that as wisdom. Yes. Romans 1.20, ever since God created the world, his invisible qualities, both his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen. They are perceived in the things that God has made. 
so that it is without excuse. So we can seek the deep things of God both in the life of Christ and in the creation. God has revealed himself. What about the idea that evil people go unpunished in this life? This is evidence. Those types of statements are evidence that those who wrote the lesson are operating under the lie that God's law functions like sinful human beings imposed rules. The reason they say they go unpunished is because they don't see someone in authority arresting them and inflicting inflicting punishment upon them. This is how human law works. It would be like a child, immaturity, a child saying, all those other kids are smoking and shooting up IV drugs and they haven't been arrested, therefore they're going unpunished. Or people who smoke cigarettes, which are legal, going unpunished. When marijuana becomes legal and people smoke it legally, will they go unpunished? Or will they still experience the punishment the deviations from the laws of health bring? See, states can pass laws to make marijuana legal. They can never pass laws to make it healthy. Those are God's laws, design laws, how things work. This is how it is with sin. A person can never commit sin without damaging themselves, searing their conscience, hardening their hearts, warping their characters. It's a corruption to the being who sins. We read that quote earlier. That every time they sin, it reacts upon the sinner, makes it more easy for them to sin again. So they say they go unpunished. It's wrong. They don't. And that's actually Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They did not think the knowledge of God worthwhile. They exchanged it for images made with their own hands. Therefore, God gave them up. God gave them up, 24, 26, and 28, to all these terrible consequences. They were suffering in this world. Sunday's lesson, the first two paragraphs, and if getting a lecture from Eliphaz weren't bad enough, Job then faced one from Bildad, who, who said something similar to what Eliphaz said. Unfortunately, Bildad was cruder and harsher towards Job than even Eliphaz was. Imagine going up to someone whose children had died and saying to that person, if your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. This is ironic because the first chapter of Job 1.5 makes it clear that Job offered sacrifices on behalf of his children for, the, for that very reason, in case they had sinned. So we see a contrast here between an understanding of grace as seen in Job's actions and Bildad's opening words, which reveal a harsh retributive legalism. Even worse, though, is that Bildad speaks this way in an attempt to defend the character of God. <clears throat> Is it true that God casts away sinners if they sin? Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The lesson then suggests this is ironic because Job offers animal sacrifices for the sins of his children. What were the animal sacrifices supposed to do if his children had sinned? Think about it. Okay, your children are out sinning. Say they're doing drugs and viewing porn. And you run out and buy a goat, slaughter the goat, and offer the dead animal to God. What is that supposed to do for your children? Will the slaughtered animal cause their health to improve? Prevent brain damage from the drugs they're using? Avoid the searing of their conscience, the warping of their characters, and the porn they're viewing? No, the animal sacrifice in that situation is based on a false understanding of reality. That God is the problem. They're breaking the rules. God's going to be upset. I've got to do something to pay him a legal penalty so he won't punish or perhaps, not to beg him off with a payment, but influence him while he's just sitting back. He's not. I'll buy him off to, in, to, to intervene and protect him. Offer him something to, so he'll intervene and protect. This is evidence that Job himself did not have great understanding about God, his law, the nature of sin, and the plan of salvation. 
Remember Hebrews 9.14, 10.22 makes it clear that animal sacrifices were incapable of cleansing the consciences of the worshipers. That's the issue, the character, the conscience, the mind. What would it suggest if a person could offer a sacrifice to God on behalf of another person who isn't even interested in turning away from their sin? If that really were possible, wouldn't such a God be an arbitrary and untrustworthy, open to bribes if he's paid in the right price? How much of Christianity has Jesus in the role of Job offering this blood to his father to persuade the father to relent from his anger and wrath? Further, this description suggests that God actually needed sacrifice and offering. But what message? And hopefully, you know, every one of these points that I'm making, I'm backing it up with inspiration. Here we go. What message does God send? This is just one. I could give you a bunch of them. Through his prophets, Hosea 6.6. 6. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. Yes. Do you think, though, that in the, uh, as you described before, the, the stage of the demonstration that God had given for them to understand that, that their choices in life had consequences, that very possibly Job was hoping to, to impress upon his children that uh, their choices would have consequences of negative outcome? By what? By the animal sacrifice that they didn't know about? As if his perception was in balance with uh, their understanding of the sacrifice of the time. I would like to see the connection there. One of the potential reasons for the animal sacrifices is for the person doing the sacrifice. In those day, this was a agrarian culture. You're the shepherd. You're raising the flock. You've helped birth these little animals. You've seen them grow up. Now you've got to take the animal and you have to look it in the eye and you have to think about your pet that you have to kill because of your sin. There's a part of it that's supposed to, I think God's design was to cause you a gut revulsion, to be disgusted, to be offended, to be horrified that you never want to do that again. How does Job doing that for his kids help his kids learn that? But just like Abraham, as his household witnessed his devotion, I think Job's children, I mean, they're not off in foreign countries. They are a, they are a, a clan society. They are witnessing what they're, what's happening. I, th- I think this is a much closer-knit community. Yes, they were in their own homes, their own tents or whatever, but this is a close-knit agricultural community that was, I mean, it was very well witnessed. Do we find in Scripture that even in God's demonstrative theatrical plan that a parent was supposed to sacrifice animals for their chil- adult children who haven't even come to repentance. No, and so what is the implication? This is my point. I'm suggesting it wasn't really saying the best things about God. What was the purpose of the sacrifice was to point to the Redeemer to come. It doesn't actually cleanse from sin. It points us to the Redeemer who will cleanse us from sin. Rightly understood. Rightly understood. With children. Rightly understood. It could, rightly understood. Your comments on this sacrifice, and then I compare and contrast it with David killing a bullock every meter and a half as he was bringing the ark back from where it was being captured. And do you think that, that made God happy? Acceptable. And I'm like, no, it, it wasn't acceptable. This is what I was reading to you out of Hosea and Micah and many other of the prophets are coming along. I'm sick of your Isaiah chapter one. Well, you're, they're meaningless to me. I hate them. Why do you do all the sacrificing? The prophets are very clear. This was not acceptable. God was disgusted with it. Also in Isaiah, he speaks against the Proverbs about, you know, the 
eat sour grapes and the, and the children's will inherit that or whatever. And, and he speaks against that. But on the same token, we are witnesses to those who we love. So what, again, what was the witness? Job 8.9 says, For we were born yesterday and know nothing, because our days on the earth are a shadow. How many times have you simply believed because someone quoted a Bible text? The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. Must be true. Okay. Um, you know, we're born yesterday. Our lives are a shadow. What do we know? Is it true that because our lives are very short, and they are short, we know nothing? Who wants us to believe that it's pointless for us to think that we can know anything? Again, this is a quote from Bildad, who God later in Job says was wrong. What did Jesus actually say? I quote Jesus, John 17, 3. Now, this is eternal life, but we can't know anything. According to Bildad, we can't know that. And we, we should quote that. We, it's our life to short. Who are we to know anything? But according to Jesus, life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ and now sent. Yes, we can know God. But the lesson authors, quoting Bildad, teach the idea that it, we're, lives are too short for us to know things. Tuesday's lesson, first two paragraphs. Job's three friends undoubtedly had some knowledge about God, and they were earnest in their efforts to defend him too. And as we saw, as misguided as their words to Job were, especially given the context, these men were expressing some crucial truths. Hmm. Central to their argument was the idea that God in his, is a God of justice, and that sin brings divine retribution, excuse me, divine retributive punishment upon evil and special blessings upon goodness. Though we don't know the exact time that the men lived, we accept that Moses wrote the book of Job while he was in Midian, so they lived sometime before the Exodus, most likely, too, they lived after the flood. The three fellows that God says were wrong about him, the lesson is citing as a source of truth about God. Something terribly wrong here. They put God in the role of the source of inflicted pain. Here's what the lesson says. Quote from the lesson. Clearly the story of the flood is an example of divine retribution for sin. In it, God brings punishment directly upon those who specifically deserved it. It's so sad. It's really sad. People are supposed to be leaders in the church and teachers supposed to be on meat, not on milk. As Hebrews 5.13 says, those on milk are not acquainted with righteousness. See, the story of the flood, if you view it through the imposed law human lens, God works like we work, then you come up with this conclusion that God's punishing sin. Rather than realizing that the human race was infected with a terminal condition, as soon as Adam, and think this through, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the human species is going to die without divine intervention. Everybody agree with that? And that divine intervention was promised to Genesis 3. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. Telling the serpent, there's a Messiah coming. He's going to destroy you and save the species. Human. Satan relaxes, kicks back, goes on vacation. Or does he try to oppose what God's planning? How does he oppose it? He tries to obstruct the coming of the Messiah. How could he? How could he stop Jesus from coming? Would Jesus have been born to a woman with a character like Jezebel? Would he force a woman against her will to be the mother of Jesus? So how about if there's no righteous people? Nobody whose heart is open to work with God. What does it say in Genesis 6? One righteous man left on the earth. Just one. This is not a punishment. This is an act of mercy to keep open the avenue for Messiah. And also, as you pointed out before, it didn't, 
it only essentially paused them in their characters where they were. It did not, it wasn't the second death. It was just putting things on hold. Excellent point. So the lesson goes on to say these words. It's from the lesson. God wasn't simply abandoning the sinner to their sin and letting the sin itself destroy them. As with the flood, God was the direct agent of, of their punishment. He functioned here as judge and destroyer of wickedness and evil. Remember the statements we read earlier? Compelling powers never found, coercion and so forth. Okay? So what's wrong with this statement? I'm going to go through a bullet list of the errors in the statement. They don't understand how God's law actually functions. They're operating under imposed law that requires infliction of punishment, like human law. They put God in the role of using coercive power, which is found only under Satan's government. They put God in the role of violating his own law, the law of love and liberty, which actually destroys love and incites rebellion. If you don't believe me, any of your relationships threaten to kill your partner who doesn't love you. You will see love will be damaged and rebellion will happen. If you really mean it, then you're not joking. They do not harmonize the flood with the historical facts of the great controversy and how God is working to keep open the avenue from the Messiah. They fail to recognize that the first death is not the biblical punishment for sin and therefore draw a false conclusion that God is punishing sin. That's a huge error. They fail to understand how God actually does destroy wickedness and evil, which itself is a revelation that they don't truly really understand what wickedness and evil are. Their suggested method would actually perpetuate wickedness and evil. If God actually acted, as they're suggesting, rebellion and in fear of God and distrust of God would never end. The only way to eradicate lies is with truth. And the only way to eradicate selfishness is with love. Remember, truth and love are the prevailing powers you read earlier. Thus, the prevailing powers of God's government are truth and love. But they have God using methods of force and coercion, which cannot work. That's why the Spirit, Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord, and the Spirit is the Spirit of truth and love. Understand, there are two different gods being presented here. There's the God who Jesus revealed, the Creator God, the God who, in the first angel, were to come back and worship Him who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is. And then there's this dictator God who uses laws like sinful beings do, and is the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death. That's Satan's view of God. It's pagan. And that view is the predominant view in Christianity. And that's why it's 150 years since this church was founded and the Lord still hasn't come. Because why? Because we haven't taken the final message to the world. We're taking this distortion. Yes? Just a clarification. Uh, those that may not know you, whenever you say the statement about just threaten someone that you love honestly like you're going to kill them, it's a rhetorical statement that you're not actually... Oh. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Thanks for clearing that up. I hope nobody took me seriously on that. <laughs> Uh, Wednesday's lesson, and I'm kind of moving fast because there's so much in this lesson, I really wanted to, to expose it all. The first paragraph says, Many instances of direct divine punishment upon evil, as well as blessings for faithfulness, are recorded in Scripture long, uh, long after all the characters in the book of Job were dead. This is, again, an interpretation of historic events based through a certain law construct of, of an imposed law. Another understanding is that God was acting therapeutically to keep open the avenue for Messiah in many, many places. But that does not mean that God did not act in places to put people into the grave, what we call the sleep death or the first death. God did, in my view, act in places to do that. But the first death is not punishment for sin. And those who argue this view of the lesson instantly admit that when they recognize and acknowledge that Daniel, who the scripture said is going to sleep in the dust until the resurrection, his death was not the punishment for sin. Oh, he wasn't punished for sin when he died and went into the dust, did he? 
Was that punishment? No, he was a righteous man. But that's the same death that these people died in the flood. You can't have it both ways. Discipline Discipline only works on on a person who's able to respond to the discipline and learn and modify and grow and mature. So discipline doesn't work on somebody who's put to sleep in the grave. Not for them, but for the rest of the community. Education. So I think that exactly some of the things God did, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, I think we're going to get to it in a lesson in just a moment, When when the earth opened up and swallowed them, there's a judgment that Korah, Dathan, and Byron were bond healing. There's nothing more I can do for them. But there's something I can do for the people. I can educate. I can teach them. I can help turn them away from self-destruction by suspending Korah, Dathan, and Byron time, shutting them down their power, putting them in sleep mode. They're going to rise again in a resurrection. They're not done. But right now, the rest of the people can learn a lesson. Wouldn't you say Nebuchadnezzar was disciplined? With his, with his years of insanity? Yes. Sure. Yeah. That was a discipline. And was also suggested by the watchers. Mm-hmm. You know, the holy watchers suggested that years of insanity upon him. But on that discipline, it was also that God said, don't do this. The results, if you do this, uh, would be. And so it, uh, it was a choice that Nebuchadnezzar made that had this consequence. Exactly. Exactly. But the consequence didn't have to be inflicted upon him. The lesson states, the Old Testament is filled with promise after promise of blessings and prosperity that God would directly bring to his people were they to obey him. This is the other side of that coin. How does it make God's long character sound? Like a mafia boss. How's a mafia boss work? If you don't do what I say, I kill you. Or if you do, I reward you. That's how they work. It's the stick, a carrot and the stick. Okay, I'll give you a reward. You do what I say, I'll pay you good. If you don't do what I say, put you down. They're presenting him as the Godfather rather than the Father God. <laughs> Remember what Jesus said. Remember, he, remember he, the lesson's making the argument that the blessings come to those who do what God says. It's a deal. It's level two at the best. Quid pro quo, the health wellness gospel. You do what? Say this prayer for 30 days. You, you get baptized in the right way. You, you do, or the, the one that came into Adventism about 35 years ago. God is a big vending machine, and you can get him to do what you want if you put in the proper coin. And what is the coin? You claim the right promise. We've got the little promise book. And you claim the right promise, and then God is going to do what you've asked him to do if you claim the Bible promises. You understand that mentality. You've seen it, haven't you? And we've got a whole book. If, here's the prom- For every situation, you've got a promise. Just claim the promise, and you get, what, get out of God what you, what you claimed. God, I, I claim the promise. Now, you've promised. You've got to do it for me. This is level two. Level two thinking. And what did Jesus say? Matthew 5, 43. Remember, we're talking about blessings if you do right. You've heard it said to love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only the brothers, what, what uh, are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And they're saying, they're, they're presenting this pagan view, that, that God blesses those who do what he says, but he doesn't bless those others. Jesus refuted that. Yes, this lesson is just corrupt, I'm going to tell you. If illness and misery is a direct result of God's intervention in punishing sin, then the medical profession is going against God's will. That's another thought. And that thought has come up. It comes up when, when people say, 
You know, God wanted my child to be born with Down syndrome. God wanted my child to be born. So a child born with a cardiac defect then, how dare a doctor fix that defect if that's the way God wanted it? It's really corrupt. The lesson officers are doing exactly what the religious leaders in Christ's day did. They make God out to be functioning on the same level as sinful human beings, rewarding those who do what he says and punishing those who don't. Christ refuted this, and they crucified him for it. And today, religious leaders who hold this disordered view end up attacking people in the church who present the message that Jesus presented. And I see it all over the world. All over the world we travel, people tell us stories about how they've tried to present the God of love. They get attacked in their church. Often told they're not welcome, you can't teach, you're not welcome to come. Third paragraph states, of course, the Old Testament is filled with warning after warning about direct divine punishment that would come from disobedience. This is true. There are warnings after warnings in the Old Testament. There's no question. Even in the New Testament, Revelation, there's warnings. How do we understand it? Sadly, Many people never learn how to examine evidence and make their theology based on declaratives. So a man is beating his wife, and as he's beating his wife violently, he says, I only do this because I love you. Do we believe the man loves his wife? To believe the man loves his wife would be an example of believing a declarative, because he declared he loved her, while ignoring the evidence. This is what happens to this theology. This theology is all based on declaratives while ignoring the evidence. So... You hear a parent screaming threats at a child who's four years old riding their tricycle towards the street with oncoming traffic and the parent is threatening all types of consequences on that child if they don't stop. Do you believe that the parent will go down there and spank or beat the child after they ride into traffic and get run over by a car? No. Yes, are there, are there threatenings and warnings from God coming through the Old Testament? Of course. Look at what the people are doing. What were they doing at Sinai when God thundered? having an orgy around a golden calf. They were heading over the cliff of self-debasing destruction and God thundered. But Moses is standing there and he says, there's no need to be afraid. But if you're a declarative thinker, not an evidence-based thinker, well then God's the one. He threatened. He'll do it. He'll do it. This is immaturity, not acquainted with righteousness. The last paragraph referencing Cordathan and Byram says this. Given the nature of how the rebels were destroyed, this incident cannot be chalked up to the idea of sin bringing its own punishment. Do you see the lesson authors are bending over backwards to make the case that God is the source of inflicted punishment for sin? This is their argument, if you think about it. This is what they're actually saying. Hey, guys, there truly isn't anything wrong with sin itself. There's something wrong with God who will punish you for it, If God would get some anger management classes and not lash out with his power to kill us, we could live eternally in sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. It doesn't actually harm. There's something wrong with God who will kill you for it. That's what they're saying. The problem comes from God. The punishment comes from God. Therefore, we need to be protected from God. And so we develop all these theologies and look at all the theologies. We're covered by the righteousness of Christ so God can't see us. Jesus stands between us as our advocate to protect us. And on and on. The blood payment goes to him. All these theologies are designed to separate us, hide us, protect us, rather than reconcile us, restore us, and unite us. And they're also, again, working on the operation with Cordath and Byram that the first death, sleep death, is the punishment for sin, which it's not. And in their own distorted legal view, they then, if, they, if that were true, they have God punishing sin before the judgment. 
They haven't been judged yet, but he's punishing. It doesn't work. In their own distorted view, there's contradictions. Thursday's lesson, first paragraph. Certainly the greatest and most powerful manifestation of retributive judgment will be the end, will be at the end of time with the destruction of the wicked called in the Bible the second death. This death, of course, must not be confused with the death common to all descendants of Adam. So here we have them making a distinction, but earlier they were saying it was punishment for sin, even though it's not what Daniel and, and all the righteous suffered, but yet it's somehow punishment when other people suffer. It's just completely nonsense. This is a death from which the second Adam, Jesus Christ, will spare the righteous at the end of time. In contrast, the second death, like some other punishment seen in the Old Testament times, is God's direct punishment upon sinners who have not repented and received salvation in Jesus. God standing at the door, Jesus standing at the door, your heart knocking, let me in. For what? So I can save you. From what? From what I'll do to you if you don't let me in? It makes no sense. Can you assess and diagnose what's wrong with this, this perspective? From all we've gone through, all the evidence we've laid out, can you discern the corruption here, the lie? What type of law is this based upon? The message of the three angels is calling us back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the creator, the designer. Sadly, we're teaching that God is the source of inflicted death, and if that's true, this is a subtle form of Eastern mysticism. Eastern mysticism teaches the eternal existence of good and evil, the yin and the yang that the good and evil exist. They're just opposite sides of the same coin. There is no good or evil. This is Satan's desire because he wants to live eternally. He wants a kingdom in which evil exists for eternity. And in this theory now, we have life and death originating in the same being so it exists forever in the eternal God. It's wrong. Tim, yep. more than that, uh, if you look at the yin and the yang, there are parts of evil within the good sphere and parts of good within the evil sphere. Yep. They mix it all up. We have this imprinting of one another's character on, on the other, even though Satan's more forceful for evil, he still has some good in him. And even though God's more good, he's still, he's still the destroyer. Yep. And it's very twisted. Yep. So they quote from the Great Controversy a paragraph in the lesson. Fire comes down out of heaven, the earth is broken up, the weapons concealed in the depth are drawn, devouring flame bursts forth, and so forth and so on. It's very interesting. They pull that one passage out of an entire... I encourage you to read the entire chapter because the context actually describes something completely different than what they're trying to do. And this is actually another form of deception. It happened to our ministry when some people went along and went on our website and took some sentences out of the middle of a, of a statement that I made, and they would take the sentence and clip the sentences from me together and form a new, new kind of dialogue or thought process. And, and some people presented that. This is what Jennings teaches. When they just took a sentence here, sentence here, sentence here, clipped them all together, and, and it's my voice making it sound like I'm saying something I didn't say. When you went back and listened to the context, I didn't say that at all. Okay, that's what they're doing. Taking one paragraph out to support this without putting in the context. If you read the whole context, I've got a whole bunch in here, but I'm going to skip to the point. They march a mass on the city. At the end of the thousand years, the devil is raised, the wicked are raised, I and mean, the devil is alive. The wicked are raised. He marshals his forces. They march on the city and says, Christ now appears in the view of his enemies far above the city as a foundation of burnished gold is the throne high and lifted up. Upon this throne sits the son of God and around him are the subjects of his kingdom. The power and majesty of Christ, no language can describe, no pen portray. The glory of the eternal father enshrouds the son. The brightness of his presence fills the city of God and flows out beyond the gates, flooding the whole earth with its radiance. Now pause. Who's in the city of God? Righteous. So where does the fire that's coming down from heaven, from Christ, flow first? 
upon the righteous. What happens then? Do they get destroyed? No. And then it goes out through the gates upon the city. As soon as the books of record are open, flooding the whole earth with its radiance, as soon as the book of records are open, and the eye of Jesus looks upon the wicked, they are conscious of every sin they have committed. They see just where their feet have diverged from the path, the seduction, temptations, and so forth and so on, all appear as if written in letters of fire. Okay? This is the fires of love and truth, the fires of God's life-giving glory that we live in for eternity. Our God is a consuming fire, as Scripture says, and it consumes what? Sin. And what is sin made of? Sin is not made of molecules. It's not made of matter. Therefore, combustion fire cannot destroy sin. Sin is made of two elements. Lies. Satan is the father of lies. What destroys a lie? Truth. And selfishness, which is the opposite of love. And thus, Truth and love are the prevailing powers. That's when the spirit fell. They saw split tongues or two forks of fire, the fire of truth and the fire of love. And they were not harmed by it. Moses radiates it. There's no third degree burns. Stephen's face is glowing it. We, Adam and Eve had, had the robes of light the, at the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah and Moses are, are like bright shining, shining suns. I mean, this, this type of fire is not harmful to the righteous. In fact, it's really not even harmful to the wicked. It's the unremedied sin in their lives that causes the pain, the suffering, and the torment. And thus they beg to flee from him. Hide us from him to the throne. Let the mountains fall on us. And their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves. This is the reality. This is design law stuff. And as long as we present God as the source of inflicted pain and suffering, we live in fear of him. And it obstructs people from really trusting him. They don't open the heart to him. The spirit doesn't come in and transform and renew them. And they're not prepared to meet him. And that's why the church hasn't done its mission. Because we're teaching a message that makes people afraid of God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are so beautiful. Your, 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 your character is so wonderful. We're so sad, Lord, because your church, your institution, that you've called upon to, to prepare the world for your return has been infected with a lie about you. It's so deep that many people never even question it. But you've promised at the end of time there'll be a latter rain. And people will rise up who will catch the truth. They'll, they'll be given discernment if you promised and, and foretold in, in Daniel chapter 7 that discernment will be given. We ask for that discernment. We ask for that empowering. We ask for that enabling to go out and tell the truth about you, that the world will be lighted, that darkness will be pushed back, and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.